Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Someone decided to put our all-stars on the front row over here. So if I'm distracted this morning, it's because they're already grunting and making noises from the front row. So if I have some bouncers that at any moment need to remove them, I'll just give you guys the, the signals, okay? Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. I want to read something. This is Paul's words to the church in Philippi. And he says this, as a pastor who has just a big heart for the churches that he's planted, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. For all of you making, that he who began a good because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love what he says here. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Just as uh, Paul says that, I feel like that's often the times that I feel about my church. And so I haven't been preaching the past two weeks. And so I'm excited to be back up here preaching and delivering the word this morning. But I love our church. I love our church family. And this morning I get the opportunity to talk about the gift of family and the gift of church family. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for a gift that we have no right to lay claim to. Not just the gift to call you father and that you call us your sons and daughters, but the gift that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just now, but for eternity. Father, we thank you for your word, that you speak to us, that you encourage us, that you challenge us, that you convict us, that you transform us. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that we're not left to trying to figure out what is truth in this world, but instead you've given it to us as a gift. We thank you for the gift of family that gets to hold one another accountable to the truths of your word, to the truths of scripture. We thank you for the gift of family that gets to remind one another now who we are in Christ, pure, lawless, and perfect and to encourage one another to walk and live in light of that. God, through, through grace, you've made us saints, set apart and holy. Help us to live as saints. Father, we will struggle. As I know there's people struggling this day. The holiday season is a time of cheer. It is a time of joy. It is the time that we get to remember every single year that Christmas has your name in it. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came to rescue. But it's also a time of pain and a time of loneliness for people that are experiencing loss. So comfort them now. God, you're a God who's good and everything you do is good. There's nothing that slips by you that's come our way. Let us remember that this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in uh, the book of Ephesians this morning. If you guys would turn there, it's in the New Testament. If you're not super familiar with your Bible, we're going to be in the second chapter of Ephesians. Second chapter of Ephesians. We're going to be starting in verse 11. We're going to be looking at the gift of family, but our main point this morning, our main point is the gift under the tree, Okay the gift under the tree. I want in the holiday season, I want us to see that everything in and around, we don't just have to say like, let's try to be a Christ in our church. Even for the Christmas holidays, we get to see Christmas is centered on Christ. Just everything in and around Christmas is about Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to see the gift under the tree. We're going to look at a few things. Here's our outline. Verses 11 and 12, we're going to look at orphans and the gift of humble beginnings. Okay. Verses 13 through 18, we're going to look at we all have the same gift under the tree. And verses 19 through 22, we are God's gift of family, okay? So again, real quick, 11 and 12, orphans, the gift of humble beginnings. 13 through 18, the same gift is what we all have under the tree. And 19 through 22 is we are God's gift of family. Now, I know that through a series like Advent, as we jump in, we're jumping into, in a sense, the middle of a book or almost the middle of a letter. 
And so we need to do a little bit of unpacking and give some context to what's going on and what's happening in Ephesus. So let's just have a little bit of context. So Ephesus was a pretty affluent city. It was a port town, a harbor town where ships would come into. And as you arrived there, there would be port or harbor warehouses. Right next to that, you were going to have what would be called harbor baths. And harbor baths were a place that politicians and people would go and they would socialize. Um, the politicians would just kind of uh, lobby for their positions and what they were doing and what they were going to do for the city and whatnot. So it was a place to mingle and connect. Right next to that, you would have what's called the harbor gymnasium. Okay. What gymnasium actually means, you can study the etymology of the word. Gymnasium means um, school of naked exercise. Okay. So our word gymnasium, trace it back, school for naked exercise. Okay. Yeah, that's what it means. Look it up. Maybe don't look it up. I don't know what you might find, <laughs> but it's what it means. That's why when people are always like, let's get back to the good old days. I'm like, really? Because in the good old days, the way they exercised was naked. And so I think I'm thankful for the way that we exercise nowadays. So when people say get back to the good old days, I'm like, eh, I don't know. I think we've evolved in some areas. It's a lot better. So the good old days, Genesis 1 and 2. Everything after that, not good old days. Okay? That was sin. And the fall. So that's, that's, that's a little bit as you just enter into the city. What you're going to find as you start walking into the city and, and start to appear in a little bit is that it's a well-educated city. And, and it at one time was built shortly after the first century was the library of Celsus, which was a big library that had, that held about 12,000 scrolls. So a lot of the people in this time were illiterate, but what would happen is the literate people would go there and they would grab a scroll and a scroll and they would read it to the illiterate people. So education was a priority. Now, Back to this uh, gymnasium, the reason why they had that is because the Greek games and the athletics were a big deal, okay? The other thing, which was one of the seven wonders, which was the big thing about Ephesus, was the temple of Artemis. Who Artemis was, was she was a cult god that people worshipped for childbearing and for fertil uh, fertility. This is why Paul came into a lot of conflict. Uh, if you read Acts 19, you, you see this kind of uh, just big situation going on with a silversmith named Demetrius, because what was happening is the, the temple or the goddess of Artemis, what they were doing is they were building these little structures, these little idols is what they were, and they were selling them because people would go there and they would go to Ephesus and they would worship her hoping to uh, have a child. And, and, and then what you could do is you could buy or purchase one of these little mini Artemis sculptures, take them back to your home. You could worship her wherever. Paul comes in. He's like, no, that's not it. So all of a sudden, this wreaks havoc on the people's business, on the local city, and all this. And so this is a little bit about their city. The reason why I say all this is this is why it's important. Let's recap. You have a city that's, their city is very close to the port. You have a city that prioritizes education. You have a city that seems to at least elevate nudity and some sort of sexual conduct. You have a city that's well-versed in education and uh, prioritizes education. You have a city where there's an arena where people circle around and cheer on athletes. You have a city with a lot of idolatry. I think oftentimes what we think is that we're so like evolved or far removed from what goes on, but a lot of what Paul is addressing then in the first century is still what's going on today. A lot of that looks like Eugene. We have the docks, people gather around. We have four, I think four colleges, maybe even more than that in, in, in Eugene. So as we look at some of these things, we need to look and see that like, one of the ideologies that we often think is like, we're, we're so much more evolved now and, and, and we're more enlightened on how we know how to address things and, and, and touch on things. But we see over and over again is that humanity still does the same things and God's word still has the answer that's provided for. So with that, let's dive in to verse 11. Therefore, all right, we know this, therefore is a therefore a reason. 
So let's go back. Flip with me to one page back, or if you're scrolling on your phone, just a little ways back, to chapter one, the very beginning of this letter. I'm going to read through verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. I'm going to pause even now, and I'm going to go back, because I think it's really easy for us to read letters and even read Paul's letters as though it's just all about a you or an individual. And I need you to go back and pay attention to pronouns with me as we read back through it and see how Paul addresses the saints in Ephesus, okay? Let's start with verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained and inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul starts off his letter, not you, 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 but starts it off with we, saints. This is something that we share in common. We, we, we. Saints means set apart. It means holy one. And that's how Paul addresses people from the start. He doesn't say, go become a saint through your works and your performance and your effort. He starts off saying, you are a saint. And then, he, and then he says, this is what it looks like to live as a saint. And this is what it looks like as some of the spiritual blessings that flow from being a saint. Okay. Then if we move forward, we get to chapter two and he starts off talking about that you guys were dead. So he goes back to their beginning and, and, and he gives them their humble beginnings to say, actually, just so you guys know, this is who you are now. We all share this in common, but you from the outset, from the very beginning, you were dead in your trespasses. Paul doesn't say that you were just struggling along, just trying to survive. He says you were completely dead, incapable of doing anything to save and redeem yourself. But he goes on the grace of God. And that's how he ends chapter two. And then he says, therefore, remember that at one time he goes back to the you verse 11. Look here. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant a promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice what Paul says here. He's humbling. He's like, you were orphans. Why would he need to do this? Does Paul need to bring people down? Does Paul need to try to shame them? Does Paul need to do this? No. Oftentimes, what is really good for us is to remember that we were orphans, that, that, that we have humble beginnings, because what can happen is the same thing that happened to the nation of Israel. And, and before we want to pick up stones and throw stones at them, for using language like they use here, because let's pay attention to, to the language they use. These are derogatory terms. The Jews called Gentiles the uncircumcision. Notice it's in quotations. This is what they would do. They would say, those people, those people over there, the uncircumcised, that's what they would call them. Or they would call them dogs. Now, it's not like, what's up, dog? It's like dogs, as in like human, or um, human dogs, as in like animals. <laughs> they would call them dogs. It was a derogatory term and a name that they would use for Gentiles. And so Paul is taken aback and, and, and saying, hey, 
remember. Remember this. Remember that at one time you were orphans. Remember that at one time you were not a part of the covenant family of God. A little bit of backstory here is in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see, we see God create humanity. And we see uh, humanity live in the presence of God. What we see is the fall. What happened there is not just a separation from God that we need to be reconciled to, but also a separation from one another. And then what happens as the story continues is God redeems a people named Israel, not because they were stronger, not because they were bigger, not because they were better. God even says, it's just because of my grace that I wanted you. What Israel was supposed to do is go and show and model who God and the God of Israel is like to the rest of the Gentile world. But instead, they became entitled. They became puffed up. They became arrogant. And instead, what they did is they just created terms and terminology to talk to people that were outside of God's covenant family. They started to just wall themselves off and, 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 and live a life that was separated from the rest of the world instead of stepping into the rest of the world to show the world what God is like. And Paul goes back to say, hey, remember, in the old covenant, you guys weren't a part of it. It was for Israel. Remember, they were a theocracy. They had God's law. They had God's protection. They had God's providence. They had all of these good things. You did not have that. It was a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. But now you do have this, but he's taking them back. Why? Because it can be easy for us to get our humble, forget our humble beginnings, that we are all broken, that we were all in need of grace. And before you know it, we become puffed up and arrogant thinking that grace is something that everyone else in the world needs because I've moved on from it. In fact, in, in the uh, book of Revelation, what we actually see is an exhortation given to the church in Ephesus. And the writer there goes on to say, he's like, hey, this is one thing I have against you. You stand, up, you stand up for doctrine, you stand up against evil, but you've lost the love and what you once had. Now, people have speculated what that means. But it could very simply mean that they've lost their love for the gospel and for the grace that God has bestowed on them. And what they've lost is their love for one another. And maybe what they have done and what Ephesus has done is what Israel did to Gentiles and say, we got this, we're good, we're the ones God chose, we want nothing to do with the rest of the world. And, and they have forgot their humble beginnings. I want to be careful to say the gift of an orphan from someone who's, uh, um, our family's fostered multiple kids, I don't see that as, as, as a gift, but I will say this, that you really appreciate what it is to be adopted when you know that you are an orphan without a family and any capability of, uh, of, of getting yourself adopted. So I think what Paul is trying to do and what he's trying to help them see is this is who you once were. This is who you are now, but you haven't done anything to bridge that. You haven't done anything to get over here. This is something that God has done by his grace. I think it's good to be humbled and to remember our humble beginnings that all of us were at one point lost without hope as it says, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. We were orphans. Everyone in this room who now has a relationship with Jesus Christ was when they were born into this world an orphan. And the only way you go from orphan to adopted child of God is by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's what it says. So, so he's like, remember this, because there's a reason he's telling them this. And before we, like I said, we want to throw stones at Israel for doing this. Let's, let's just ask this question. Is, is there something or is there an area in our life where we've walled people off? Or is there a group of people that we've walled off? Because again, the Israelites would not hang out, period, with Gentiles. In fact, 
There's a saying, which I don't have it by William Barclay, that says they, they wouldn't even show up to a woman and help her in her greatest hour of need during childbirth because they never wanted to bring a Gentile into the world. I think we think like we're on the cutting edge of all the racial reconciliation, all that's going on in the world. This stuff's been going on for a while. Who are people that we will not have into our home? Who will people that we will not build relationships with? Do we, do we have barriers that we've put up? Have we forgot our humble beginnings that the only reason we are a part of the family of God is by God's grace? Let's look at verse 13. And let's look at the gift that we all have, the same gift under the tree. But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, look at you, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were far off have been brought near, okay? Again, far off have been brought near. Look at what he says. He says, by your spiritual life of devotion, right? By how well you read the Bible, by how well you pray, by how well you live a missional lifestyle, by how well you do anything, that is not it. You who once were far off have been brought near by, that's it. That's the preposition, by the blood of Christ. That's it. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at what it says here. For he himself is our peace, as Beck was talking about, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What is Paul talking about? Paul is talking, not in figurative speech, he's actually talking about the temple. That there was a dividing wall of hostility. We have a photo up here that just gives you a picture of the temple in the first century. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> there we go. All right. Since you guys can't read any of this, you'll just have to take my word on it, which is great. What you have here is this is, this is the most holy place, okay? This is a place that only priests can enter once a year through the, the ritual of becoming pure, becoming clean, okay? Outside of that, what you have is the priest's courtyard, okay? This is where priests hung out. Notice, outside of that, you have what here says the, uh, the Israelites' court, uh, court, courtyard. So what this was, this is the place that only Jewish men could go. So here's what you have so far. Most holy place, priest, Jewish men. Now, the Jewish women could hang out over here in this courtyard right here, okay? All right? No, no one likes that right now, right? This is why it's a good thing that Christ came, to, divide, or to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is not, again, speaking of like some some wall that's floating out there in the ether. He's talking about the actual temple. And look here, this is the Gentile courtyard out here, okay? That's where they could go. So Gentiles, on the other side of the wall, women, Israelite men, priests, most holy place, okay? So when Paul says that, that Christ came to tear down the dividing wall of hostility, he was being literal. You could not have access to God's presence unless you went through the ritual of purification, but you couldn't even get in if you were Gentile to the courtyards. Like, like you had your own on the outside. Then women, then men, then priests. So this is what Paul's saying, is you were once far off. He's like, remember you who could not go anywhere inside of that temple to any one of those courtyards? That's you. You were far off, but you have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. It's not because you just figured out a way to grit and bear and lace up your bootstraps and work really hard to tear down this wall. It's because the wall was torn down by the blood of Christ and him alone. That's what he's saying. That he himself is our peace. 
What does it mean that Christ is our peace? It means this. In Christ's darkest hour on Calvary, on the cross, there was no peace for him. It was bloody. It was painful. He was crying out in agony. For whatever it is to be eternally forsaken, rejected by God, Christ endured that. Whatever eternal hell is on a cross, that's what Christ endured. It was a cosmic war where there was no peace. Why? There was no peace for Jesus Christ on the cross so that we could live and be at peace with God. He wasn't up there paying for bad attitudes. He was up there showing how much sin has separated us from God. He was showing the holiness and the righteousness of God. He was bearing the wrath and punishment that our sin deserves to bear. Not just bad attitudes, sin that's destroyed us, that, 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 that has separated us from God and has impacted and separated us from our relationship with one another. He was enduring that for us. No peace for Christ so that we could have peace and live at peace, not just now, but for eternity with God and with one another. He was taking what we deserve. Uh, this week, as a parent, I tried to model this for my kids, for my daughters, and they, 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 had, they had done something. I'll, I'll just share what they did. They snuck out of the house at night. Yeah, they're, they're getting old. They're like five and eight, so it's cool. Um, <laughs> and we were like, they're playing hide and seek. So my wife and I spent a good while finding them. We're like, man, they've, they're, they have, they're doing good. Like, this is, this is their best, right? They're over at our neighbor's house, okay? My, my wife gets me inside. She's like, hey, maybe a couple deep breaths. It's cool. I'm like, I got this. <laughs> so I sit them down. And then, sorry if this goes against your parenting style, uh, but, but part of it was connected to lying and lying in our house gets soap in the mouth, okay? So that's, that's one of our consequences. So, or shampoo, which they do not like. Uh, so I set them up on the counter and, and, and I walked them through it and I explained and, and, and I was like, and what should the cons consequence be and, and who should get it? They said, I know the consequence is soap in the mouth. I should get it. They were referring to themselves. And so I got soap out and I started scrubbing my mouth with soap. All right? Now, I thought it was beautiful. Because it's like, this is what you deserve. This is what I'm taking for you, though you deserve it. And you've said that. Brooks was like, cool. <laughs> Just, as long as that ain't going in our mouth, that's fine. And Joey was like, logically, this makes no sense. She's like, it doesn't. So and she's like trying to piece it together. I'm like, no, never mind. <laughs> like, I was just trying to show you something. But that's really a picture of what, of what the cross is. It's Christ stepping into a place to absorb something that we rightfully deserved, but he endured it for us. That's what it is. And you know where jealousy stems from? If you have kids on Christmas morning, what do your kids do? They look at everyone else's gift under the tree. Do they not? We do it too. We just do it in a more mature way, but we do the same thing. Our kids are always looking at, at who, who's got what underneath the tree. Jealousy stems from this. I think that I have a right or an entitlement to something that doesn't belong to me. I, I, I think I deserve something that something should be mine that doesn't actually belong to me. That's where jealousy stems from. It's a nasty thing. And it comes from looking at what other people have. And as we get older, we can look at gifts and talents and everything else that everyone else has. What we need to see is this, that in Christianity and in the cross, we have the same gift under the tree. Here's what I mean. The tree is the cross. We have the same gift in common underneath the tree. As we sit underneath the tree, the ultimate tree, the cross, what we see, we all have the same need. We need that man on that tree paying the price that we deserve to pay to reconcile us to God and to one another. We all share that in common. We come completely broken, 
incapable of saving ourselves, and we share the greatest gift of the tree of the cross in common. We have the same gift under the tree. This year, as you see gifts under the tree, you can think when you see gifts, we have the greatest gift that God would send his son to come and reconcile us to himself and to one another. We share that in common. There's no superstar Steve in Christianity. There's no sucky Sam. There's not different categories. Everyone has the same gift, son and daughter of the living God, because we all share the same gift under the tree of what Christ has provided. That's where we need to look again this Christmas is we need to stop looking at what I'm getting and not getting and start remembering this, that church family, first, we have a very humble beginning and it's the gift of being orphans, but now we have the gift of adoption and we did not purchase that. We have the gift of being reconciled to God and, and the gift of being reconciled to one another. There might be a million things in this life that you don't have, but the one thing that you ultimately need, God provided for you. What does he mean here in 15? We need to clarify this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance. This isn't Paul contradicting Jesus who said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What he's saying is this, is the, cere the ceremonial law, it's been done away with. The ceremonial law created so social separation because there were people that were clean and not clean. But the one way that you become clean is only through the blood of Christ. The one way you have peace with God is only through the blood of Christ. So he does away with that. It also does this, the law no longer, it's abolished in the sense you cannot boast in your moral performance in any sort of way to point to your salvation. Think about that. He gets a, a rid of division. We see this in our society right now. This is how I approach this hot topic. This is how I approach this hot topic. This is how I approach this. And, and then therefore we become morally superior to other people that aren't doing this right or doing this right or doing this right. We all arrive in Christianity as sons and daughters of God by the same gift under the tree, Jesus Christ, who paid our price there. That's it. The one thing that humbles us is the gospel of grace. The, 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 the one gift we've been receiving that we cannot look at anything that we've merited, done, or contributed to pay for. That's it. It will actually unite us because when we go to the table, even today, we go to the table and we remember everyone that walks that table with me, we share the same gift in common, the same gift under the tree. We had the same need. We needed the same blood. We needed the same broken body that paid for the same thing for each and every one of us. We share that in common, church family. That's what the table represents. So first, we have the gift of humble beginnings. We have the same gift under the tree, but now, we are God's gift of family. We are God's gift of family. What does that mean? Let's look here. 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Christ Jesus, himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice I said, we are God's gift of family. We're God's gift of family. If you notice here, what Christ does is he gets rid of the dividing wall of hostility. He reconciles us to God. Remember how he does that through his blood. We all have that same gift under the tree and he reconciles us to one another. What does he make us? He, he, he makes us all one and the same with the same father. He makes us members of the household of God. He makes us family members. He makes us sons and daughters. That's what he does. Christ is the cornerstone. It says you, you can't think of cornerstone as like some cute little rock that was used for building. Some of these things were like a hundred feet tall. They're massive. They're massive rocks that you would build a building off of, but these things cannot be moved and they cannot be shaken. 
Neither can your new identity that you have with who you are in Christ. It's, it, it's, it's not possible. It's not possible to move. We are God's gift of family. You can't move this. Here's, here's what God does. It, it's, it's this beautiful work of the Trinity. God sends his son, okay? So God gives his son as his greatest gift to humanity. What does the son do? The son purchases by his blood God's children and then gifts them back to the father. And, and some of you might be like, oh, would, 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 would God want me? Like, like, is that a gift? Here's what the son does. The son arrays you first in splendor and glory and flawlessness and purity and perfection. And he hands you back to the father. You are God's gift back to God. Where do I get this from? Revelation 5.9. Look at this. They sing a new song. This is what is happening from heaven. And it is this song. You are worthy to take the scrolls and open its seals because you were slaughtered. Look here, look here. With your blood, you purchased us for God. Look at that. I'm going to read it again. With your blood, you purchased us for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. When I say that we are God's gift of family, what I mean is that God sends the son. He gives his greatest gift. The son comes here, does all the work that needs to be done on our behalf. He wraps us. As you think about Christmas trees, think about it. Christ died on a tree. The tree is green. It's evergreen. It's eternal. It's everlasting. And then we array it in ornaments and splendor and beauty. What Christ does through the cross and through our faith in him is he makes us beauty, or beautiful, perfect, flawless, and righteous. He wraps us in all of that, and he gifts us back to the Father. We are God's gift of family. So even as you look underneath the Christmas tree this year, it's, it's almost like you're going like this, like, what's going on? It's like, we all have the same gift in common. The same gift in common is the cross. It's Jesus Christ. The son reconciles us back to the father. He gifts us to God. God sends the son. The son is empowered by the spirit. We see this whole like inner working of what's going on. And we see and realize that we are passive recipients of this amazing work of God's gift of salvation that he gives to us. It's just like, we're like, wait, so we all have this gift. What do we do there? Nothing. Okay. Well, he, he wraps us. He presents us. He gives us back to God. What do we do there? Nothing. Oh, it's, it's like, what we can do is say like, whoa, it's amazing. It's grace, and that's what grace is. It's this work that God has done. We, and, and this Christmas, as you look at it, look underneath the Christmas tree, and remember, we all have the same gift, and we all have the same gift in common, the cross. But also remember this, which sounds scandalous, is you are God's gift. Christian, son, daughter, I'm going to say it again. You are God's gift that Christ has wrapped in beauty and splendor and perfection and given back to the Father. That should humble us and blow us away this Christmas. As we think of gifts and look at gifts under the tree, we go, my goodness, I'm God's gift that Christ gave back to God after God gave me his greatest gift. You have an identity that's sealed. I mean, it is sealed. If you guys remember uh, old leaders here, Caleb and Betsy Rexius, is our old worship leader. We went to the day that their foster daughter became uh, Mercy Rexius. On her birth certificate was a different name, though. It was just baby girl, and that's the name that she had, which is the same name that many orphans have. It's just baby girl or baby boy. It was so, I remember pulling into like a coffee shop and just weeping because for the first time, I felt like I understood what it was to be adopted and what it was to be justified because the judge brought down the whatever it's called. Yeah, thank you, the gavel. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, your name now is Mercy Rexius. He had a name. Whoa. That's it. She's no longer a baby girl. She's, she's Mercy Rex. She has a name. 
And do you know what? She doesn't have to go through just like us, wondering through life or like, is, am I not going to be a Reeves tomorrow? Is my name going to disappear? It's not going to disappear. Most people don't wake up with that fear and that worry. How much more secure is your name as a son or daughter of the living God that he has seen? You, you got to hear this, is that our childlike behavior does not cause God's love to rise in affection for us. Our childlike behavior does not cause God's love to surge toward us, nor does our lack of childlike behavior cause his love to decrease. Our lack of childlike behavior does not cause a decline or affection in God's approval and acceptance. Sadly, we think of God's love like a fire we can control. Our good childlike behavior, we think, is like adding gas to a fire of God's love, causing it to grow hotter and more intense. We also think our lack of childlike behavior is like throwing water on a fire, which causes the flame of God's love to dwindle, lose heat, and slowly burn out. God's love, if it were a fire, does not rise or fall by what we put on it. It doesn't cool off or get hot based upon our childlike behavior. It's a fire that burns white hot all the time. And if we fully grasp it, it'd probably consume us. The warmth is always there and it burns hot out of his devotion to us, not out of our devotion to him. The thing that drives it is not our childlike behavior. It's not even the like part in child, childlike. The thing that drives God's love is the identity piece, the child part. It's not what we do or how we perform. You don't need to stoke this fire. You don't need to add gas to this fire. You don't need to do anything to this fire. It's like this. We oftentimes think that we need, again, to go and do something to, to increase God's love and affection for us. You know what spiritual disciplines are? Reading our Bible, praying. It's, our, it, it, it's, it's, it's what it is. It's, it's this. It's us getting to sit by the warmth of God's fire and enjoy it. We are not increasing God's love and affection. We are not decreasing it by things we don't do. It is steadfast, steady, and consistent because he gives us the identity as family members, as children. We don't have to make it rise or make it fall. And it's hard for us to get that into our heads because we go, well, what about what I did last night or last week or this and that? What God's looking to is what Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. What God is looking to is his devotion for you, not your devotion in your daily life. Again, it's a picture of what grace is. I'm going to end with this. What do we do? What is our response? Colossians 3, 12 through 15 says this, and he's talking to the family and he addresses family before this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, weakness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. And then he says this, and be thankful. What does it look like for a family who has the same gift under the tree, who starts off as orphans, who, who, who is united by that same gift under the tree, who is God's gift of family? What does it look like for us to actually be a family? I'm going to say a few things quickly. One is that we're grateful. Paul says that. Be thankful. You are part of a family that you have not earned your way into. And, and, and a lot of people might leave, but you will have your family and God's family and God secure for all of eternity. You have a family. That's a gift. This Christmas season, even if you don't have immediate family, you have, Christian, the gift of God's family given to you, the church. We can be grateful for that. We can be thankful for that. At our group this week, Jesse Williams said that he doesn't have any biological family around here, but he doesn't necessarily feel the absence of that because of the church family and community that he does have around here. I think that's a gift that we should be thankful for, not entitled to. Be a lifter. 
A family member needs to be a lifter. There's a lot of lifting that gets done. If you guys know anything about weightlifting, someone comes around to spot you, right? I used to love this in the gym. They'd be like, I'm barely doing anything, you know? And like, what they're really doing is like lifting all the weight. Typically, what happens is you have a few family members that are lifting a lot of the weight, both in service and in generosity. We need our family to all be lifters because the more people are lifting, the lighter the load is that we're lifting. Graciously and lovingly. I'm just going to say this. Please don't be a moocher. <laughs> Learn to be a lifter. Like come in and lift with the family. I think there's something beautiful as the world looks in and sees that. And as we go out in the world, people go like, man, that's a family I want to be a part of. Last, be fighters. But when I say be fighters, I mean fight for one another's faith. I think we're so oftentimes worried about our faith and, and, and whatnot. What we need to be concerned about on a Sunday morning and through our lives is how is the faith of my brother and sister doing and how am I fighting for them? Do I pick up gloves in, 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 in an act of defense to fight for myself or do I put on gloves because I want to fight to see my brother and sister live as a saint that God has called? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we all have the same gift under the tree. We thank you that that gift humbles us, but it also unites us and reconciles us. We thank you that we have the gift of family. We thank you that there's nothing we can do. People are gonna get up right now and some are gonna sing and some aren't gonna sing, but if they're your children, your love does not surge more toward them in that moment. Your love is secure and held steadfast in what your son has done. But let us sing with passion because of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.